before uh, we get into the book of James, uh, I want to kind of just begin this morning just by saying a big thank you uh, to many of you in here uh, who know that we um, are foster parents, and we have been doing that for over a year now, uh, and we have uh, two in our home, and several families in here are doing that as well, have done that. Um, there are a couple that I know that are wanting to either get back into that or um, start that journey and process. The reason I even mentioned anything is uh, last time when we talked ended James, we actually referred to this. And many of you have been such a blessing to our family and other families in, in, at Graceview that are on this journey as well who have supported us um, by providing diapers, even as this morning uh, bringing um, formula to us that is scarce, and some of you know that, and uh, so that can be scary what that might be if you're uh, having an infant in your home. And so I just want to say thank you for people who ask and show interest and show support. Not everybody can do what we're doing, uh, but you come alongside as a church family and uh, have been a huge blessing. So thank you. Am I a little loud because it seems really loud to me? Is it good to you? All right, then I'll just deal with that. All right, so we finished James chapter 1 last time, so we're going to start with James chapter 2. All right, so just as review, uh, James is like the Proverbs of the, the New Testament. That's much better, David. Thank you. This is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. And so Proverbs gives us much practical uh, understanding and wisdom, and this is kind of uh, just basic advice of this is how we should live and walk our Christian life. And so James is kind of that in the New Testament. Bump that up a little bit, David. So, as we, as we kind of review chapter 1, these are some things that we talked about when we were in chapter 1. Genuine faith perseveres in trials. So, if you've been here, this was a little while ago, since I only get a few times a year, right? So, genuine faith perseveres in trials. Genuine faith seeks wisdom from God. What do I mean by genuine faith? Someone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and it was real, it was genuine. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling within you then these are things that are going to be part of your life. It seeks, after, or seeks wisdom from God. When you go through a difficulty or a trial or, or come to a point where you have to make a decision, genuine faith would seek wisdom from God. Genuine faith endures temptations. Genuine faith is quick to hear the Word of God. I think this was two times ago. Be quick to hear, so to speak. And we talked about how we need to be quick to hear the Word of God. Hopefully we will do that this morning as well. Genuine faith is not just a hearer but also a doer of the Word. So as we went through James 1, that's what we were looking at. So if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you are a believer, a Christian, a Christ follower. So we know that attending church doesn't save you. If you're here this morning and that's all you're resting on is basically because you're at church, you've been going to church, that does, alone doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. We're going to actually have six or seven that are going to be baptized next week. I have the privilege of doing that. It's going to be awesome. Hope you're all back for that. Baptism doesn't save you. That is not part of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's not up for debate. Jesus is the only way to heaven, and that is what you need for salvation, right? But if that is true of your life and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus is your Lord, then there will be fruit that is evidence of that fact. Now, Paul preaches what? Grace. By grace are you saved through faith, right? Alone in Jesus Christ. James, as we've said, comes along and said, if this, is, if this salvation, if this grace and faith is real, 
then there are going to be things that are part of your life, right? So today, we take another look at another fruit of genuine faith. So follow along with me as we read James 2. Now, as, as I get into this, I'm going to read a kind of a probably more than what I should have um, bitten off here this morning, but I don't want to be in James for literally the next 10 or 15 years for the few times that I preach. So we're going to take kind of a section. We're going to kind of take an overview of this uh, section of James 2, uh, and I think it'll be appropriate for this this morning. We're not going to necessarily dissect every word of every verse uh, throughout here, so don't be nervous of that. James 2, starting in verse 1. You with me? You ready? My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man, and not the rich are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So that's kind of one section. Well, that'll be one point here. Okay, moving into verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, so there's a bunch in there, and we're going to cram it all in here this morning, all right? So the title of the message, because we have to have a title, is Genuine Faith, and you could probably pick this up because of the other titles I gave you that we had in James 1. Genuine Faith Shows No Partiality. I think being partial or showing favoritism is kind of just part of our world and part of our society and honestly part of our human nature. It's part of every church. It's part of every school. It's part of every workplace. I think we've probably all have experienced it maybe uh, towards us ourselves because of different places that we've been. And James here in this passage calls it a sin and says this should not be part of a believer's life. In fact, side note, the only favoritism that is acceptable in Scripture is what? Oh, you don't have to say it out What's the only favoritism that is allowable in Scripture? It's found in Philippians 2, 3. Anybody think they know what I'm referring to? In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than yourselves. All right, so if you want to show any favoritism, show favoritism to everybody else and not yourself. That's the only one that is legitimate favoritism. We can do that. I need to prefer your needs above my own. Why wow, we see this as a characteristic of God. In Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. God does not show favoritism based upon our financial status or our social status because God is perfect in every way. He shows perfect justice. He's perfect in His holiness. 
and he is perfect in his impartiality. Why? Because God judges on the inward condition of our soul and of our heart. We as man often judge based on what? Our outward appearance, clothing, position, skin color. And here we have this confronting us here in James. So as I read through this passage a good number of times this week, I, I decided that there were basically three sections because every you know, good Baptist preacher has to have three main points, right? So we'll have that here this morning. So point number one, uh, you're blank on your sheet if you're uh, taking notes there. Number one is the example, right? So the example that's given for us here in James 2. So letter A, partiality towards the poor. So verse 1, read that again. Verse 1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Don't hold faith in one hand and then partiality in the other. That's kind of the picture I was... So don't show partiality and then hold faith. Why? Don't go around saying, I'm a Christian, and then treat others with favoritism or being impartial. These two concepts are in great contrast to each other. Why? Because Jesus showed no partiality. Don't wear the name of Christ and then treat others differently or live in great contrast to how Jesus lived as our example when He was on earth. In fact, as we study the life of Christ, he was eating most often with who? Publicans and sinners and the, the poor. We might find him with a tax collector who would have some money, uh, but certainly was not the highly esteemed in, in society and well-respected. In fact, most of Jesus' earthly ministry was to the lowly and the poor. He might have been around the rich and maybe the famous and the religious, but what was he often doing when that was the case? He was confronting them. And he was sharing the gospel with them. Most often, the poor, the lowly society, that's where we found Jesus. Even his own disciples were made up of lowly and poor. Matthew, the tax collector, again, probably had some wealth to him, but looked down in society. Why? Because Jesus was more concerned with the heart than the outward appearance. We read through the genealogies. You could find all sorts of different sort of personalities and people with different problems, different levels of the social status. Think of Tamar who committed incest, Rahab, a prostitute. David, right? Great man after God's own heart, great wealth, but boy, we see some horrible sin. We can see the good, the bad, and the ugly even as we look through the genealogies. And Jesus comes and puts all these on a level playing field and says, come follow me. Matthew 20 gives us another great example. We were there probably a handful of months ago as Jeff was preaching through Matthew. Jesus talks about the parable of the workers in the field, right? Some of the workers started early in the morning. Some came later in the day, midday, later in the afternoon. Some came almost at the end of the day, and they all got what? The same wage. Principle being taught that we're going to receive the same reward of the kingdom, whether I was saved when I was five years old or someone who was saved last week at 70 years old, we will inherit the kingdom of heaven. What are we establishing? The fact that a characteristic of God is He shows no partiality. So, we get back to James where He uses this example of how we treat the poor. So, let's reread those verses again. So, if, for if a man, you with me? For if a man, um, verse 2, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. You picture it? Picture these back doors. Some wealthy guy comes in and someone who is far from wealthy, and you can tell by their appearance, comes in, you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, right up here where the Martina sits. These are the prime seats right here. 
You pay attention to the one with fine clothing, but you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. What's the idea here? In the synagogue there, there were seats that were more premier, the good seats that they would offer to those who seemed like maybe, maybe they had something to offer them. But if it looked like a person who might not have no money, they really could benefit the assembly in no sort of way at all. Why don't you go stand over there in the corner or maybe sit here in this lowly place. You can sit at my feet. We don't have enough seats for you. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You know what I think is great about the gospel? The gospel takes a poor man with no money, no status, puts him right next to the richest man in Anderson who has all the power and prestige and clout in Anderson, and the gospel says, you are the same. You are equal. I read a phrase. I love this phrase. The gospel is the great equalizer. That's what I love when we come into church this morning. I don't care what you're... I mean, some of you are way smarter than I am, all right? Some of you got way more money than I do. Some got less, all right? I'm smarter than a couple people in here, hopefully, maybe. I don't know. Some of the kids. None of that matters. We come in here and we come to worship God and God alone and the gospel is the great equalizer. So how are you doing in this area of being like Christ? We talked about as a great characteristic of God Himself and Jesus. How are you doing in this area of not showing favoritism? I gave the example when someone walks in these back doors, walks into our church, and they have maybe a look that is different than what your look would be. And maybe they smell differently. Maybe it looks like, oh, they might have a rough background. How do you respond what are your thoughts towards that individual? Are you less likely to go talk to them? Maybe you're thinking is, I don't talk to anybody when they come in. Well, that's a different problem. We can work on that. But are you more prone to go and reach out to someone who looks like you than someone who maybe looks vastly different from you and maybe you can't connect with? I was thinking of this this, this past week as I was thinking, what, what are different areas even within our church? And I was thinking, a bunch of you um, participated in dinners for eight. Right, so we have things, practical things. Sometimes with, even within our own church, we can show favoritism. So a bunch of you participate in dinners for eight, which just is an awesome thing that we do here. And I, sometimes when we're splitting up those groups, I, I've often wondered, I wonder what some people think when they find out who's in their group. Now, this is human nature, right? If you were to pick your, handpick your dinners for eight, you'd probably, you know who you could pick. I'd pick the, all these people that have kind of the same interests I'm comfortable with. They're like me because it's easy. We like comfortable have any of you this last time, maybe you got your, or maybe you showed up to the house and you saw who was part of your dinners for 8, 9, 10, or 11, it doesn't always end up being 8, and you had a thought of like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're in our group, or, or, or some negative thought like that. Shame on us. I remember one time, this was years ago, I hope I have grown in this, but we were at a restaurant, I don't remember who all was there, it was with uh, Danielle, I don't know if our, what our kids were, this is years ago. Um, I think God has changed me in some of this thinking, but we had a server uh, that waited on our table, and there were tattoos all over his body and piercings all over. And I had a judgmental thought of what this individual, before anything was ever done, he's coming towards the table, and I had judgment. I'll just tell you, for whatever reason, I remember that because he was, the, he was probably one of the best servers, probably one of the most kind, caring people. I don't, know, I don't know what his spiritual condition was, but even just in his 
personality of what I thought was going to be like, I was so wrong. Why? Because we base things on what? Outward, external, oftentimes, and many times we're wrong in that. You ever find yourself in a place in Anderson where maybe you see a homeless person or someone who's obviously uh, much, doesn't have much uh, wealth or personal belongings? What is your thought? Do you pass judgment on them and have an attitude of condemnation? Or is your thought of, how can I help that person? I wonder what I can do to meet a need, which is possibly a brother or sister in Christ. I'll give you a, uh, tell you a story. This was about five or six years ago. God really op- put an opportunity in front of me uh, that helped me kind of change my perspective on homeless people. So five or six years ago, before I came to Grace View, I um, took a group of about 20 young people, all high school age, and we went to Denver, Colorado, and we did what was called a homeless experience. I may have shared this before. Uh, now, I've, I've done things like that. I, in fact, I took 30 kids one time to Juarez, Mexico. Um, that's like the ca- murder capital of the world, I think. And uh, that's a whole other story for some other time. Uh, that was quite an experience. Well, this time we were in Denver, Colorado, and basically we had two days um, where we um, lived as homeless people. Now, Basically, what happened is we, we got there to this church. The kids didn't know everything that was going on. And so we get there, and we kind of give some instructions, and we say, you are going to be able to keep three items with you on this. For, so for two days, we're just going to walk the streets of Denver, Colorado. You should have seen the parents when I first explained what we were going to do. Uh, we still had uh, 20 kids that uh, joined us. And so we said, you, have, you can keep three things with you. And so I think some text, like a, like a sleeping bag, because it's overnight, we're going to be sleeping outside, uh, a sleeping bag or a pillow. You might want a sweatshirt. It might get a little cold and that sort of thing. So you have three items that you, you, you can pick of your belongings. Then we each gave them a few dollars. We went to a thrift store and said, whatever clothes you find here at this thrift store, that's what you're going to be wearing for the next two days. And uh, so whatever it was, three, four bucks, you had to find something that you could wear. They kept their shoes, so forth. So off we go. We get on this uh, church van bus, and when they dropped us off this location, we had some assignments along the way, and basically we're just walking up and down this main drag. And there's quite a population in, in Denver of, of homeless people. Well, obviously, since we haven't been homeless for long, we don't actually look the part of, of homeless, but it still was one of those things where we had great interaction. It was a great experience without going and explaining all that. The whole point I say that is this. As one of the... We got to talk with many homeless people during those two days. It actually snowed that night of all things. And in Denver, Colorado, if you've ever been there, you have no, it wasn't supposed to. It was, it was interesting. But that second day, we were just walking. We were trying to fulfill one of the this assignments that we were supposed to do. And we ran across uh, this, this homeless guy who was just kind of walking down the street. And he stopped us and was asking what we were doing. So we kind of explained. I think I had two or three uh, young people with me. And we kind of explained what we were doing. And uh, he just thought this was the coolest thing. And so he kind of shared his story, how he was in California, how he came here. And then he started, talk, uh, started talking about his faith and his relationship with Jesus Christ. And I was like, this is not what I was expecting. And here, this homeless guy in Denver, Colorado, who I would have had thoughts of what he may or may not have passed judgment on why he's even there. I mean, his testimony was unbelievable. And he, he stopped and he prayed with us for probably a minute or two. And we got done. We're like, that dude knows Jesus. And it was a cool experience. And I thought, how many homeless people here in Anderson are our brothers and sisters in Christ who we may spend eternity in heaven forever worshiping together, and yet we may just pass right by them and we see someone with a need. So A, partiality towards the poor. 
B, the divine position of the poor. We kind of reference the fact that Jesus' earthly ministry was very much to the poor. Reading through this, God has chosen the poor and they are heirs to the kingdom of heaven. It's clear in this passage the doctrine of election and sovereignty. That's not the point of the message here to discuss that this morning. But I do want us to consider and think about the fact that God's ministry, Jesus' ministry here on earth was very much to the poor. I think the majority, many Christians are the lowly and poor. This is consistent throughout Scripture. Not to say that rich people are not Christians, right? Abraham was very wealthy. Solomon had all the money you could ever ask or want. God used many rich people, but God has also called many poor. In fact, if you were to do a study through Psalms and Proverbs, as I was reading through a bunch of the Psalms and Proverbs, if you were to pull all these verses, we're going to look at a couple this morning. Just I pulled out a couple verses in Psalms and Proverbs, but if you were to do a study on the poor and what our reaction to the poor should be, we would probably be all ashamed of ourselves of what we do. Let me give you a couple verses. Psalm 41.1, I think these will be on the screen. Psalm 41.1 says, Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. You want to be blessed? You want God to recognize you in time of trouble? Consider the poor. This actually carries the idea of more than considering. So you can't just get off this if you're like, mm, I consider the poor and then move on my way. It, 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 do something about it. Proverbs 17, 5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Proverbs 28, 27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. We could go on and on with many, many verses in Psalms and Proverbs who gives us what our reaction should be to the poor. So let me ask you this morning, what is your attitude towards the poor, the lowly in society? What is your disposition towards those who are much less fortunate than you? We have been made aware, I guess, of a whole other culture in Anderson with being part of the foster care system. There are many, many people who are in great need. What are, what are we doing about that? So back to James. God chose the poor to two things. I think these will be blanks on your sheet as well. Reading verse 5 again says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So what do we see God has chosen the poor to? Rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom of God. The poor in this world are often chosen to be rich in faith. In fact, if you had to choose to be wealthy on earth, all the wealth you could ever want, an eternity in hell, or dirt poor on this earth, but eternity in heaven, what would you choose? I, I, I think I would know what you would all choose. In fact, you may be one of those sitting here thinking, you're talking about the poor, you're talking about me. I was actually thinking of this when we were singing a couple of our songs this morning. I, it's a bummer when you have to preach because, man, those are some really good songs and you've got to kind of want to sing them as, to the top of your lungs as loud as you can, but I had to save something so I kind of just have to sit and enjoy you guys listening. I was singing this morning. But what have we done with the gospel? You may be sitting here thinking, hey, I'm one of those poor people, right? Good news. If you are a child of God, no matter how poor you may think you are, 
you know Christ is your Savior, you are rich. You are extremely blessed. And it says here, you are an heir to the kingdom of God. Let me read you a story here. A story is told about a man who was invited to a fancy banquet. He arrived wearing simple clothing and was told to leave the room and go to the kitchen for a handout. The man left, went home, got dressed up in fancy clothes, and then came back to the banquet. This time they let him in, and he was seated in a special place. But the guests were rather startled when the food was served because this man began to take his food and drink and pour it on his coat, saying, eat coat, drink coat. When he was asked what he was doing, he said, it was obviously my suit that was invited to the banquet and not me. When I came earlier wearing simple homemade clothes, I was kicked out. But when I returned in my suit, I was invited in. So I can only conclude that it was my suit that was invited to the banquet and not me. Now, as strange and as silly as that story is, we often accept people on the basis of their clothing, their skin color, maybe their position in society, education, maybe even a position in church. And James says that if your faith is genuine, then this behavior should not be part of your life. So, number one, the example. This example that James gives us is dealing with the poor. Number two, point number two is the contrast. The contrast. So, picking up in verse 8, I'll read these verses again. Verse 8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So point A here, loving your neighbor is part of God's supreme law. Now, I'm going to read a couple different passages, so follow along with me here. I'm going to start in verse uh, Leviticus 19. So we're trying to establish loving your neighbor is part of God's supreme law. Let me give you an Old Testament passage first, Leviticus 19, starting in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Why? If you own a field and you are reaping a harvest, leave what's on the edge for the poor, the homeless. Those are less fortunate. They don't have a field to harvest. So reap it right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare... Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Those that have fallen on the ground, just leave those. You don't need all that. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. I'm going to read a little quicker through the rest of these. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor and rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Pay your hired work. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. What's it talking about here? How we treat others, how you treat your neighbor. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the principle of this loving your neighbor was established in the Old Testament. It's not new. In fact, it's part of God's royal law or supreme law. Let's give a New Testament passage again, which we hit several months ago. Uh, 
Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall, again we have the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's still a New Testament principle, one that is expected of us today. And James here is commending those who are fulfilling this aspect of the law and saying it is going to go well with you when you're living this out. So what's the obvious question? Who is your neighbor? Well, this is answered in Luke 10. Luke 10, I'll read another passage. Luke 10, verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And what was Jesus' response? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. What's the story about? The Good Samaritan. Just seeing if you're tracking with me. So a man heads from Jerusalem to Jericho. A priest passed by and does nothing, continues on his way. A Levite passes by, same response, sees a man in need and passes on by. And the Samaritan comes and stops and meets the need. So the question is, who is my neighbor? Well, who is my neighbor? My neighbor is anybody that I come in contact with that God puts in my path. It's the guy at the gas station. It's the lady at the McDonald's, if you dare, uh, go at the drive-thru. It's your neighbor that is actually a neighbor. It's walking your dog through the neighborhood and you cross paths with an individual. It's that neighbor. Loving others, loving our neighbor, is always compared to loving ourselves. Love your neighbors as yourself. Husbands, it says love your wives as love, you love your own body. Why is it worded this way? Because we're really good at loving ourselves. In fact, we're really good at meeting our own needs, right? When we have a craving, we have desire, we're very good at fulfilling that. So I'm told as a Christian, I am to love my neighbor as myself. I'm to love the homeless guy on the corner as I love myself. That's convicting. The Samaritan of all people was the one that saw a man in need, had the resources to meet the need, and he met the need. So ask yourself this, who, who in my sphere, who in my world has a need? And what am I, what are you doing about it? How can I love my neighbor? You see a need, you meet a need. It may be as simple as a neighbor that needs yard work done. Maybe someone that you know needs financial help and you have the resources to help. Maybe it's not a physical or even resources. Maybe it's just being a friend and you so, know someone who needs to share their burdens, someone that needs prayer and you see a need and can be a friend and be a 
loving neighbor. Maybe it's in the realm of spiritual things where you need to share the gospel. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a neighbor across the street that has a spiritual need. Have you shared the gospel? That is a lost person's greatest need. So what does this supreme law of loving your neighbor imply? It just says love your neighbor. What does it imply? It doesn't matter who they are, what they look like, what they have, or what they can give you in return. So right now, if you were like me this week, and if you're tracking with me at all this morning, right now you are thinking of someone who, is, who God has brought to your mind. Determine in your heart that you are going to act. Whatever that need is, act on that this week. I challenge you. Letter B, showing favoritism is sin. Showing favoritism is sin. So again, we have the great contrast. The contrast is loving your neighbor as yourself, you do well. And then letter B, showing favoritism is sin. Favoritism not only is it's not part of God's character, right, is inconsistent with the Christian faith as we mentioned in verse 1. Don't show partiality and then hold faith in your other hand. It goes against what God has done in choosing the poor of this world. But James says here it is just plain sin. So that's the great contrast. If you're loving your neighbor and meeting their needs without partiality, without favoritism, James here says, you do well. I think we all want to hear the phrase, well done, the good and faithful servant. So how are you doing in this area? But if you're constantly showing favoritism, and not loving those that God has put in your path, then James here says and reminds us that we're in sin. So point number three, you ready? Last point, we'll be done here this morning. Number three, the warning. The warning. Letter A, we are guilty in need of a Savior. We are guilty in need of a Savior. Where, 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 where do we find this? What, what are you talking about? I came across this quote in reference to this passage from Barclay, and it goes along with this. I think it'll be on the screen. Helps us understand here that the Jew was very apt to regard the law as a series of detached injunctions. To keep one of those injunctions was to gain credit. To break one was to incur debt. Do we understand what it's saying? So if I don't lie, I get a point. All right? If I don't steal, I get another point. Um, if I murder somebody, that's, that's a minus. But two to one, I'm still plus one, so I'm okay. Is that how it works? Okay, all right. We continue on. So therefore, a man, as the Jew would understand here, therefore a man could add up the ones he kept and subtract the ones he broke and, as it were, emerge with a credit of debt balance. Now, if we were to take a poll of people in Anderson County, even many that are in church this morning, would they have a system of theology that might fall in line with that? We hear it, we put it this way, if my good outweighs my bad, I think I'll get into heaven, right? I bet you there's many people this morning, even in churches, that have that sort of mentality. And here James is saying, here's a warning. If you offend in one point, you're guilty of all, as we read. James shoots this theory down that if, if my good outweighs my bad, we're going to have a problem. In fact, maybe you're here today, 
I recognize most faces here today, but maybe you are new to this church thing. And that's maybe your very mentality is that I, I don't know what this faith thing that you're talking about, but I'm a pretty moral person. And my, I mean, I've, I've, I might, I'm not perfect, I understand that, but man, I've done a whole lot of good. And if that's what you're depending on your eternal security, then you're in trouble this morning. James verse two, or chapter 2, let's pick up in verse 10. We'll read these verses again. For whoever, he says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. It's interesting that he picked like the two, I mean, these are two big sins. I thought we were just talking about like showing favoritism, you know, like I don't prefer those people. I prefer these people over these people. Like how, why do you compare this to murder and adultery? I mean, those are some pretty big sins. Like, I think that's the point that we're supposed to get this morning is that it does matter. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law, which we all have been. That's why your eternity in heaven is only secure when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Why? Because this area of favoritism and partiality is a big deal. It matters to God. So we all recognize and find ourselves that we were or are guilty in need of a Savior because we have violated God's law. Then letter B, the future judgment. So wrapping up in James 2, verse 12, I'll read these verses again. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James' final words in this section is a challenge. You better speak and act as ones who will be judged based on God's law of liberty. This idea of law of liberty is based on what is written in God's Word. So why is it referred to as law of liberty? Because God's Word is freeing. It frees us. The gospel frees us from sin's slavery. And we have a new master, right? Jesus is our new master. And Jesus says, my burden is light. It is freeing, the law of liberty. But there is this future judgment coming. So pay attention. How you show partiality now and favoritism now and love or don't love your neighbor will indicate what your judgment will look like. We say, that, that sounds pretty severe, Verse 13 explains, the one that has shown no mercy will not receive mercy. What is this referring to? Well, one who has not shown mercy is not going to receive mercy. They will receive hell. Why? Well, if we remember what we're talking about is genuine faith. This will not be part of one's life that is evidencing genuine faith or has genuine faith. This pattern in a life should not be characteristic of a Christian. You may be thinking, you know, as you've been talking this morning, I know that I am guilty of this. Well, I think that's what is great is the fact that this sanctification process is we are growing and improving in these areas. And God has presented us with us this morning, this truth. And maybe you may be thinking saying, you know what, that's me this morning. I am one that is partial towards others based on circumstances. I show favoritism or I choose who I'm going to minister to over others I'm not going to or 
fill a need on some but not others. Well, this morning, then, let's be quick to hear God's Word as we talked about in James 1 and act on this and have a change maybe in pattern in our life. Because even the wording here is someone who continues on and showing favoritism and partiality is a pattern of one's life. That is not going to be true of someone who has genuine faith. You show me a person that is impartial and doesn't show favoritism and does show mercy to people in need and who loves others as himself, then I'll show you a person who has been transformed by God, a life that God has poured mercy and love into. In other words, if God has shown mercy to you, which is the case of many of us in here, then our life should be one that what? Shows mercy. Now, even as I was thinking of this passage this morning, it it's kind of hits you in the face a little bit like, is this characteristic of me? Because I know my faith is real and is genuine, but are there times where this is true of, of me? I was grateful as I honestly thought of Graceview and thought of many of you as I was thinking through the people that God brought to my mind thinking, I'm thankful that we are a church that as far as I know and see and understand that this is not true of Graceview. But at times, individually, it may be how you view people and you do show favoritism based on external circumstances. The final line in this verse closes with mercy triumphs over judgment. I came across this, a seminary professor, uh, Dr. James Roscup, states it this way. When a man lives without mercy to others in God's world, he simply shows off the fact that he himself has never responded aright to the immeasurable mercy of God. The mercy a man has shown others as fruit of a life touched by God's saving mercy will triumph over judgment. His own sins worthy of judgment are removed by God's working in his life and dissolves all the charges strict justice might bring against him. That's so good. Finishes up here. Thus, his showing of mercy is not a matter of heaping up personal merit to deserve salvation by his own good works. The mercy he shows is itself a work of God for which he can take no credit. In other words, genuine faith will display mercy to others. Genuine faith will show love to his neighbor. Genuine faith will not have this life pattern of showing partiality. Let's close our eyes, and I'm done here this morning, but before I pray, I want to ask you a few questions. I think there's plenty of applications in this passage this morning I just want to consider our own life and mind. So before we pray, let me just ask you a couple of questions. In what areas have you shown partiality? Maybe towards the poor, areas of social status, race, color of one's skin. If that's been you, confess that heart attitude this morning. Let me ask you this, who specifically has God brought to your mind this morning that you need to love? Maybe it's an actual neighbor, 
you've mentioned a homeless person. Maybe it's God convicted your heart of your response to someone that has a great need. Maybe it's a family member that you know that has a need and you refuse to help. Act on that and meet a need. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then my last question, who in your sphere has a spiritual need and you've not attempted to share the love of Christ? Maybe a family member, maybe a neighbor, someone that you know needs the gospel. Determined to take that opportunity that you have that God presents and pray and ask God to present those opportunities so we can love our neighbor regardless of any external or outward circumstance. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this reminder this morning in James. Many of us in here would say, yes, I am a believer. I am a Christ follower. And we have genuine faith, but oftentimes we can judge based upon externals. God, forgive us for that heart attitude and spirit. And as we're confronted with this passage this morning, this is something that is not a pattern in a believer's life. So may you rid that of us this morning And may we act on those things that you've brought to our mind this morning, that we would be more like you as we go throughout this next week. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for being with us this morning. Have a great rest of your day.